It's Philosophy Talk. We scientists have now located a gene which we scientists believe gives people the needs to believe in God. The world described by physics is so depressing. Aren't you thrilled to be just a transient arrangement of atoms? That leaves no room for spirit. This God gene releases chemicals into our body which create the impression that there is meaning in the universe. I suppose you'd like the universe to include freedom, justice, and even God. Two out of three might not be so bad. Is there any evidence for the existence of a spiritual dimension in our universe? The discovery of this God gene is a big step forward in our quest to show that every bit of human behavior can be explained away mechanically. Physics, philosophy, and theology. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. We're continuing conversations that began at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford. That's where Ken and I teach philosophy. And today we're thinking about science, philosophy, and theology. Well, Ken, those things used to go pretty much hand in hand. They started going their separate ways, I think, uh, when science revealed that the Earth really isn't the center of things. Contrary to what religion kind of thinks, the Earth and humans aren't the center of the universe, just one insignificant little planet in a remote corner of an insignificant galaxy. It's been pretty much downhill ever since, especially between science and religion. Yeah, that's true, John. And I mean, religion did resist for a while. I mean, the Pope put Galileo under house arrest for agreeing with that uh, scientific discovery. But if religion eventually caved in and adjusted more or less to scientific reality. Well, there's an old saying, as science advances, religion retreats. Despite all the consternation it caused among some Christians, even the Pope back in the 1990s saw the light and declared evolution to be a scientific fact that Catholics should wholeheartedly embrace. I take that as a sign of progress. Well, you shouldn't be too optimistic, John, because it's not as though science has completely quelled the religious opposition. I mean, there are many, many, many fundamentalist Christians who to this day say things like evolution. Well, that's just a theory. And they, they think that creationism ought to be taught as a competing theory in science class. Creation science, they say. Well, I'm sure it's not just Christians, but fundamentalists of all sorts. But in my opinion, that's just crazy. I mean, if people find comfort in religion, if it gives their lives meaning, if it helps guide them morally, good for them. No problem. But it's the job of science to tell us the nature of the universe, the origins of life, and all that. Religion should just butt out. John, you really do sound a little bit scientistic. You worship at the altar of science. You sound like a, a reductionist of some sort. Do you really think that the religious perspective can provide absolutely no insight whatsoever on these fundamental questions about the nature of things? Uh, yeah, that's pretty much my view. Don't you agree? Well, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I'm certainly not really ready to simply dismiss the possibility that religion might provide us some insight into the nature of things, at least without, uh, not without thinking about it a lot more. Well, I'm always happy to think about things, but give me a clue about where to start. What might religion 
have to say about the nature of things that would supplement what science tells us? Well, let's think about human consciousness or, or, or free will, for example. Okay, I'm thinking consciousness. Well, I'd go to brain science and psychology. Free will? Well, theology certainly appeals to free will, especially in trying to explain the problem of evil. But I don't know that it illuminates free will as opposed to just kind of confusing things and presupposing it. Again, John, you sound so scientistic. You worship at the altar of science. You sound reductionist. But look, I know that some scientists think that they've proven that humans don't have free will, and some philosophers have bought that line. But you dig into the work of people like Benjamin Livett or Daniel Wagner, and what do you find? They actually have no clue what free will actually is, partly because they're so oblivious to 2,000 years of nuanced philosophical and, yes, theological thinking uh, about the subject. Well, I, you know, I agree with that. Some scientists approach things in a very simple-minded way. Uh, some of these scientists make a big deal out of the fact that there's something going on in our brains when we make choices. Uh, duh. I mean, who would doubt that these days? That doesn't do anything to settle a philosophical question about whether our choices are ever free. So scientists are sometimes confused, and philosophers sometimes have the business of straightening out those confusions. But I'm really dubious that theology can help. Well, I'm not actually going to say that theology can directly answer the questions through some kind of divine revelation or something. But maybe a religious perspective on these issues that takes human free will and consciousness utterly seriously can provide an, an antidote to philosophically confused science and overly scientific philosophy. Well, could be. Some antidotes taken in large quantities are themselves poisons. I think basically, though, bad science is bad science, bad philosophy is bad philosophy. I don't see what religion has to do with either of them really so much. And science and religion, they're separate projects. They've become separate projects. Let them stay that way. Well, then what do you think about people who actually manage to integrate both science and religion into their lives? We sent our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, in search of just such people, people who balance science and Christianity in particular every day. She files this report. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist at Texas Tech University. She remembers this one awkward conversation she had with a devout Christian family at a new church she'd started going to. They asked her what she did for a living, and Catherine said she studied global warming. And they said, oh, that's so good because our kids are being told all these lies in school. So it's just wonderful that someone like you is there actually doing the good research on this. So I said, oh, that's wonderful. What kind of lies are they being told in school? You know, I was just, I was thinking to myself, they're probably being told that climate change isn't real. And they said, oh, no, you wouldn't believe they're being told that the Arctic is melting and that polar bears are endangered. Catherine is also an evangelical Christian. She's even married to a pastor. So every once in a while, she finds herself in these sticky situations. I get quite a bit of um, unpleasant mail, and a lot of it comes from Christians saying things like, well, you can't be a Christian if you think climate change is real. And while it seems like an unlikely combination, an evangelical Christian who's also an atmospheric scientist, for Catherine, science and religion go hand in hand. To make her point, she looks to the Bible and the book of Hebrews. Belief or faith is the evidence of things not seen. Science is exactly the opposite. Science is the evidence of things we can see and measure. So I feel like the two are entirely compatible by definition because what faith is all about is things that science cannot see, can never measure. 
Um, science can't follow us where we go when we die or where we come from when we're born. There's a great deal more religious nuance uh, in the science community, I think, than um, popularizers in some circles would have us believe. Elaine Howard Eklund is a sociologist at Rice University. She's been studying the faith lives of scientists for the past 10 years. In one study, she sent a survey out to 1,700 scientists at top research universities. She found about 50% consider themselves to be religious. 60% said they were spiritual. And when I interviewed them, um, they described that quest for spirituality as needing something that was beyond themselves, that provided them a sense of awe and meaning in the world, but that was very compatible with science. Only about 2% self-identified as evangelical Christian, like Catherine Hayhoe, but many identified as Jewish or Catholic, and not just in the cultural sense. Even those who identified as atheist or agnostic reported believing in spirituality. Elaine calls that group the spiritual atheists. I had thought, well, there's sort of one way of being an atheist, and I didn't find that to be the case. There were many versions of atheism um, as well in the science community, some that you know, were compatible with religious attendance even. Elaine found that scientists gravitated toward faiths that were more open to interpretation. Still, the evangelical Christian climate scientist Catherine Hayhoe has found a way to reconcile the tenets of her faith with her training as a scientist. If you believe that God created the earth, if you believe that um, it was given to people to care for, if we believe that the greatest commandment is to love our neighbor as ourselves, then it makes all the sense in the world to make sure that God's creation is healthy, <laughs> able to support life, able to provide clean water and food to everybody on the planet. That just makes sense. Catherine looks to science to explain what's happening and why. She looks to her faith to decide what to do about it. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Thanks, Caitlin. I'm John Perry. With me is my colleague from Stanford, Ken Taylor. And today we're talking about science, philosophy, and theology. We're joined now by Tim O'Connor. He's a professor of philosophy from Indiana University. He's author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation, The Necessary Shape of Contingency. Tim, welcome back to Philosophy Talk. Hey, guys. It's great to be here. Thanks. Hi, Tim. You're, now, Tim, you're something of a rare breed. I mean, not all that rare, but anyway, a little bit rare. A contemporary, hard-nosed, analytic philosopher who believes in God. But my understanding is you weren't always religious. So so what, what led to this stage of your thinking? Yeah, well, uh, like a lot of converts, religious converts, uh, I had a profound experience of conversion, um, in my case, to the Christian faith in college as a freshman. For me, this came after a lot of reflection and discussion and uh, even tentative exploration of Christian community. Uh, but in the end, my faith was really quite unexpected for me. Um, at some point, a shift occurred. I went from reading the uh, New Testament Gospels as stories about um, this remarkable man who lived long ago to taking myself to be hearing him speaking to me right now through those texts. Um, I'd say it was like when you're standing chest deep in calm ocean water face to the shore and unexpectedly you get hit from behind by a large wave. So there I was, wiped out on the shore with my face in the sand, asking myself, uh, what the hell just happened? <laughs> and well, this naturally led me to want to study philosophy to try to sort it all out. Well, um, anything that leads people to philosophy, I'm in favor of, uh, even getting hit by a wave in the ocean. Now, in uh, our intro, Ken and I 
agreed that religious doctrine has had to change a lot over the years to accommodate new scientific discoveries. But we disagreed about whether there's room for science to change to accommodate religious insights. Ken suggested there might be, and I at least played the role of resisting that. But do you think that sometimes science has to adjust to religion? Well, I think it's first worth pointing out that um, attitude-wise, religion has had a um, profoundly positive impact on the the rise of modern science. Um, I think uh, some of the early modern figures um, saw in their religious belief um, the the place for a combination of both humility, um, that that our world is uh, a product of an infinitely uh, wise creator, so it's going to be complicated to figure it out, but also optimism. It's a, it's a rational, infinitely rational creator, and so we should be able to discern deep principles that show elegance. Um, and, you, you know, you see this in people like Francis Bacon when he spoke of God's two books, the book of, uh, the, of his word and the book of his works, Kepler, Brahe, you know, Galileo himself, despite the controversy, uh, a number of figures like that. But content-wise, no. Uh, I'm not at all a God of the gaps kind of God, that is. Uh, religious people have, of course, long been tempted to insert God into the gaps of whatever the, whatever the current gaps of uh, uh, scientific understanding is. But um, I think the great medieval philosopher, theologian Thomas Aquinas had it right in saying that uh, in this matter, we're best guided by um, an understanding of God as the cause of causes. Uh, so, and I, I take him to have meant by that that we find evidence for God's existence not in any current gaps in our scientific understanding, but at the inbuilt limits of science. Let, uh, let me just interject. There's a great book that develops uh, these themes that you've mentioned, that Tim has mentioned, and that's E. A. Burt, B-U-R-T-T, I think, The Metaphysical Origins of Modern Science. And he traces how this idea that the world was fathomable in terms of numbers really has its origins in the idea that the world must be like that because it's the creation of a rational God. It's not much read these days. It's a pretty old book, but it's quite fascinating. Right. Galileo said the language of mathematics is God's own language, and that's the language in which we ought to study reality. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about science, philosophy, and theology. Our guest is Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. In our next segment, we're going to ask whether the religious perspective on issues like human consciousness and free will challenges our scientific theories. Science, religion, and the human condition, when Philosophy Talk continues. Does a strictly physical picture of our universe, a physical account, a scientific account, leave any room for a spirit in the sky? How about a spirit beyond the sky? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. We're questioning science, philosophy, and theology. Our guest is Tim O'Connor. He's from Indiana University. So, Tim, I get it that you are not uh, what, what people call a God-in-a-gaps person. God steps in to explain what science can't. But I, I, wonder, if you think, I, I wonder if you think that 
religion can help set the agenda and the limits of scientific thinking in the following way. I, we know, I don't know how we know that we have free will or that we're conscious, but we, we seem to know that before we start doing science, right? Can, can science actually really undermine such beliefs, you know, by starting from the neurons or isn't kind of the religious perspective or what Sellers called the manifest image, isn't that just precede science and challenge science and condition and constrain science. What do you think about that thought? Well, in principle, um, I suppose there could be compelling evidence um, that we don't have free will, but um, it's not the sort of evidence that we currently get despite a lot of uh, claims that are made these days by neuroscientists and social psychologists. Um, uh, so, so I do think it's, it's up to science uh, ultimately to, to study human beings. We're part of the natural world and um, the human sciences are progressing. But um, it, we have to clarify what we mean by free will and consciousness. Um, sometimes a lot of issues get confused in discussions by scientists. Um, often they confuse questions of whether we act freely or whether um, our beliefs about what we've done um, subsequent to our acting uh, are subject to uh, manipulation. Um, there, there's, there's a variety of confusions. So, no, so, I, now, Tim, so John said he thinks it's the job of philosophy to clear up such things. It's the job of philosophy to dig into such issues that science can't just completely settle on its own. And he thinks that theology and religion ha have no role. Do you agree with that thought? Uh, well, I don't think religion gives us, um, uh, so, so speaking of Christianity, my own religion, I don't think it gives us a, um, a philosophical conception of what free will is. It presupposes that in some sense human beings are free and morally responsible. Um, but uh, I think it, you have to turn to philosophy for systematic reflection on what that might mean, what it might be that we should be looking for if we're empirically investigating human beings. Well, uh, now let um, me ask you, though, I mean, what, what all do you include in... Christianity. I mean, take Saint Augustine. He seems to sure. to give us a a, a pretty uh, fairly detailed account. He says that Adam had free will, uh, and God took it away after he ate the apple. And he's he made uh, he just since Adam wasn't going to obey God, he he made it so that Adam's uh, body didn't obey Adam's rationality. And in that sense, we don't have free will. But many modern Christians say, well, we do have free will, but they think of free will as uh, a contra-causal thing that would be incompatible with determinism. So how, how do you think of free will in a way that leaves you both a Christian and uh, someone who thinks science can tell us uh, what the universe is like? Okay, good. Yeah. So uh, when someone like Augustine's writing, of course, he's blurring the boundary lines between philosophy and theology. He's doing a little bit of both. Or, um, uh, and uh, so I would say he, when he's developing a particular picture, he's more doing philosophy perhaps than theology. But um, yeah, I think, f I think our basic notion of free will is that we are in control of how we act, that um, we have alternatives available to us that we're aware of, and that we are capable of choosing from among them. Um, and, uh, but it's no part of our conception of free will that we are some, some sort of neutral um, deciders among options. We have preferences. We, we always um, lean in one direction rather than another. And uh, I think science then can illuminate the fact that so sometimes uh, f uh, factors that are 
shaping how we're thinking about the options are often unknown to us. They're not a so, part of our conscious so, awareness. So, so Tim, I want to. I want to. So you seem like a very moderate and reasonable guy. I want to uh, try and get you to be more radical and less less moderate and less reasonable. Okay. See if I can do uh, just to probe. So Tom Nagel has this book that uh, I've read lots of reviews of. I, it's on my shelf to read for the summer. Uh, that has caused lots of controversy. And one of the lines in that, as I understand it, he's been pushing this kind of line forever, is that our current science, current way we do science is inadequate, is inadequate to capture these things like consciousness, free will, the self. I mean, scientists go around, many scientists go around, and many scientifically inspired philosophy go, go around saying there aren't any of these things that religion holds dear, that philosophy holds dear, that our ordinary self-consciousness holds dear. Right? There just aren't any of these things. And Nagel kind of agrees that if current scientific practice was all you had to go on, reductionistic scientific practice was all you had to go on, you couldn't find these things. But he takes that to mean science has to change. Science has to adjust. It has to en enrich and alter its methodology. Do you see anything to that kind of line of thought? I, I think I do, uh, but I, I'm very cautious as a philosopher to recommend uh, the way in which that change should occur. I think philosophers were not nearly as imaginative about um, experimental science uh, as scientists themselves are. Um, but uh, I agree that um, at the end of the day, if you think, as I do, that uh, consciousness and uh, our capacity to make choices don't reduce ultimately to subpersonal physical phenomena, then to really give a model of what's going on, you're going to have to get comfortable with some kind of non-reductionistic picture um, whereby there are top-down influences. Uh, everything's not just bottoms up. That said, I think the way to get a scientific handle, if one could, on any such uh, top-down causal influences is to have a really good understanding of what's going on underneath because I think any reasonable person is going to say that uh, consciousness and the capacity to make choices, even if they are in some sense basic capacities, not reducible, they are nonetheless causally sustained by underlying physical phenomena. And so the only way we can see what kind of difference that they make empirically is to understand how things go um, in their absence. And so that entails doing science reductionistically. So I, it, methodologically, I think science always appropriately looks at things reductionistically and um, is very, because um, not, not, not to pursue a reductionistic line is to uh, say, um, uh, you know, we, we've, we've hit rock bottom uh, at a certain line of inquiry and we just don't, we just don't know where, where that point will be. So this may be a little off topic, but I'm just, I, I, I was struck by the fact that you said that after your conversion experience, when you read the New Testament, you heard Jesus talking to you instead of just telling stories that we could kind of interpret in useful ways. So, I mean, how, how should I take that? I mean, at, at one point, Jesus said something I don't, you know, have it quite right, but uh, uh, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will, I don't know, smite the wicked and cast them in a furnace of fire, and there'll be great weeping and gnashing of teeth, and the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. This is all coming back from a catechism long ago, so I may not have it quite right, but uh, how, how do you take that? Is I mean, do, do you take that literally the way fundamentalists would, or, or do you think Jesus is just talking to you in, in an extended parable here, or, 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 or how do you how do you fit your science together with this prediction of of uh, of uh, a fiery death for the unrighteous and the kingdom of heaven for the righteous? 
Yeah. Uh, well, without trying to answer your specific question, I, I think um, just talking about it methodologically, how I think about it, Christian ought to think um, about these issues. Um, I, I think Christian theology at its best is an ever-changing tradition of inquiry. It's mm -hmm. been going on uh, for two centuries. It's centered on what Christians take to be God's self-revelation in the Bible and in, supremely in Jesus of Nazareth. But the, the religious texts that we have encompassing the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament are, are not a set of simple um, statements to, uh, and practical instructions, but a very diverse set of writings spanning centuries and cultures, you know, incorporating uh, genres that even today are only incompletely understood. Um, they're, they're written by human beings who are shaped heavily by their own cultures. And so uh, Christians across uh, the millennia and, and diverse cultures have had to ask themselves collectively in each generation, how does God speak through these texts? What can we learn of God's ways and purposes uh, for us from it? And uh, I think we don't do that in, uh, in isolation from what we know about the world from outside of those texts. Right? We're seeking an integrated uh, understanding that's the, um, theoretically uh, satisfying. Uh, so that's kind of, that, that means it's very complicated. <laughs> yeah, very complicated. Uh, appropriately. So let's, let's, uh, let's, for some people, they think it's very simple, and I don't think that's so. Let's let some other voices in here. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about science, philosophy, and theology with Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. Roger from Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Roger. Thank you. Um, I'm uh, tripping over a sort of apples and oranges issue here. It seems to me that religion and mathematics and constitutional law and things like that are axiomatic systems that are, you know, all based on articles of faith or axioms of some sort, whereas physics and chemistry and things like this are empirical systems that are merely descriptive, not explanatory. So aren't you guys trying to mix two epistemologically unmixable things? Well, that's an interesting question. Uh, I'm not, Roger, thanks for the question. I'm not sure about calling these things axiomatic systems. I think physics aims ultimately to be an empirically grounded axiomatic system because it wants the fundamental laws and the distribution of matter at the beginning of the universe, and then it wants to derive everything. But I don't know. I'll let you handle Roger's question more deeply, Tim, if you've got a deeper. Sure. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be happy with uh, speaking of religion as an axiomatic system. Um, so in Christianity, you have creeds that most Christians assent to, at least the very earliest creeds. Uh, these are summary statements, right? But they're an attempt to interpret um, the, what I spoke of, the, these very diverse set of writings, and come to some sort of systematic understanding, right? But the writings are primary. They're, they're analogous to data in science, um, where you might at any given time get a systematized um, theory but Tim, that uh, it takes uh, on. Yeah. But it does seem as though over the history of humanity and the progress from, let's call it the pre-scientific age through the scientific age, religion had to gradually abandon uh, one of its original uh, ambitions. Ori I think religions originally did have the ambition of explaining, not just in normative terms, not just evaluating, but explaining the cosmos and its origins and the, and the order in the cosmos. And as science arose, it had to gradually retreat, sometimes with great resistance from its explanatory ambitions. Do you, is, is that, do you think that's right? Uh, sure. So, right, right. So, the religious impulse in human beings goes way back uh, to kind of animistic religions, and you do 
So there were attempts to uh, constantly to give supernatural explanations of what we would now think of as uh, natural phenomena. And when you have things like the the Abrahamic religions, right? They're, they're not totally uh, cut free of that. You can see traces of that in their early stages of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. But uh, I would say that's part of how um, Christianity has evolved over time is to recognize um, that um, uh, that, that there, there are different kinds of explanation and the kinds of, I do think Christianity gives explanations of the world, but ones that are complementary to, not um, uh, rivals to uh, scientific explanations. But it, it's taken a while to, to see that difference. So, it, so religions have changed. I, I, I mean, in support of that, I think it, it's important to make a distinction. Uh, religion does offer some creation stories and so forth and so on. But often what religion uh, finds discomforting in science is not the rejection of religion's own stories, but rejection of the kind of common sense in which religion kind of is comfortable and finds itself. I mean, the idea that the earth is the center of things uh, isn't something that humans had to wait for religion to tell them. I mean, it was, it's, it was just common sense. And then science came along and said it's common sense, but it ain't true. Right, uh, and so so I suspect uh, when the Pope told Galileo to shut up, it, he, he was just saying, "Don't undermine what everyone believes, uh, because that's the basis of religion." As opposed to, "Don't undermine the theological explanations of the heavens and earth," because I'm not sure the Pope knew about whatever ones there were. But John, I think you're under something really profound, and it has also something else to do with this. Uh, the third element of our triumphant philosophy and the separation between philosophy and theology. I do think that at some point in human history, what Sellers likes to call the manifest image, our sort of common sense, rationalized conception of ourselves as being in the world, had many sources. Religion was one source. Philosophy was another source. Just our lived experience were, and these were, was another source. And these were interacting, mutually interacting, mutually supporting thing. And kind of reflection upon what we take ourselves to be, right, gave rise to this view. We're free, autonomous beings subject to moral law. And then the philosophical reflection about where, where does the moral law come from? What is the nature of the self is all driven a lot by that whole package of things. At some point, science comes along and starts to tear that manifest image asunder and and starts to tear the contributing factors you know tease them apart what do they contribute and it seems to me i do it does seem to me that religion was the biggest single loser in that rise of science you guys think that's right or wrong I, I don't think that's that's true at all. Um, the last <laughs> part, I agree. <laughs> I, I, I do agree with you that there has been this interaction and that science has sort of challenged our manifest image. But I think religion can and historically has among the most reflective um, adherents um, easily accommodated some of the changes. I don't think of, of science as totally anti-common sense. I think of science as reflective common sense that has uh, a great deal uh, more information than, than we get through just ordinary experience of the world. And it seeks the most um, reasonable explanation of everything um, that it can accommodate. So in a sense, it's, uh, it's trying to be um, intellectually conservative with the data given to it. Now, that leads to really radical and surprising conclusions in some cases because the data are deeply surprising. Yeah, what, um, I mean, by common sense, of course, that, that is a, that's, that's a relative term. What was common sense in the 1300s, right. that is everybody more or less believed it and assumed it, is, isn't now. But my own view is that, you know, physics 
concern and astronomy in particular concerned itself with something with things that didn't have a big practical effect on humans and so it wasn't too surprising that our what what Ken and Sellers call our manifest image was pretty inaccurate. I mean, if we'd had space travel, we would have quickly come up with something better than thinking that the stars were little holes in a fabric over the Earth and so forth. But we didn't, so it was of no practical significance. But when, when psychologists and neuroscientists try to tell us that that part of our common image that is so successful, our ability to do with other, deal with others, is all false, that's pretty screwy, and I think that religion has some insights there. I mean, concepts like grace and forgiveness, uh, those are concepts that are really useful and have a practical value. So I would be a little surprised if science could totally undermine them. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about science, philosophy, and theology. Our guest is Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. How do you reconcile religious beliefs, your religious beliefs, if you have any, with the claims of science? Or for you, is there no conflict? Can science and religion live in peace, or are they fundamentally opposed? When Philosophy Talk continues. Yearning for God in the Age of Science. I wonder how it worked out for George. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Tim O'Connor from Indiana University. We're talking about science, philosophy, and theology. Tim, do you think that some religions have an easier time and some a more difficult time in aligning or accepting or accommodating the discoveries of science? Uh, sure. Um, uh, if a religion makes uh, striking claims about the underlying nature of physical reality, saying that, say, perhaps that it's a, an undifferentiated whole in some sense, um, I think that is, uh, is, is at loggerheads with uh, the scientific conception of the world. Now, what's a religion uh, makes say, it, what religion makes that kind of claim? Are you thinking, say, Buddhism or something? Yeah, I am thinking, at least on certain philosophical interpretations, not that the ordinary religious Buddhist is, is thinking that way. Um, but if, if one is to make that, that kind of claim, uh, I, I do take that to be problematic. Um, it's because it ends up denying a kind of causal structure to reality. So, so see, see, I think of a great, the, what I call the great reconciliation, and I wonder about what I call the great reconciliation. Uh, and that's the reconciliation between science on the one hand and what I think of the manifest image or the other, but, almost, but now I've just restricted to the religious image. I mean, Christianity has a very robust metaphysical picture of the human being in the world, right? We have an immortal soul, we have consciousness, we have this kind of rationality, we have a complete autonomy. I, it seems to me, Tim, that that's the guy that really has the hardest time, because here's something that John uh, alluded to earlier, that has the hardest time once science turns its... I think, blazing, destructive lands on the human being and nature itself. This is freedom, autonomy. It maybe it hasn't proven it, but it's, it's, it's one of the things, it's not the only thing that says, let's seriously question whether these things are so. The human being is just an animal. It's just designed by evolution like other animals, all this sort of stuff. It, once science turns its blazing light, it seems to me a lot of the background presuppositions about the human being that Christianity has with it 
starts to get torched. And Buddhism, which doesn't buy into all that, maybe has a better shot. I don't know. And the thing that seems to me to have the best shot of surviving the blazing light of science is just pantheism. Okay. So what do you think uh, about all that? That was a yeah. torrent, but yeah. I want to so, get, so, get some challenging ideas uh, out there. I, I think you're certainly right that um, the way Christians have commonly interpreted certain claims, certainly about the nature of the soul, uh, our intention with science. I don't, I don't think there's a separable part of us, which is an immaterial substance, which is the soul. I think we're composed of wholly physical parts, um, but I'm a non-reductionist uh, uh, about the nature of human persons. Um, so, but, but the term soul that, you know, that, that gets used in the Old and New Testaments uh, has been given a metaphysical gloss uh, in much of Christian theology, but there, um, uh, that is historically, but it needn't be given that. In fact, there's a, there are a lot of scholars who argue that um, this is uh, a bad interpretation of what the original writers had in mind, especially the the, Hebrew, the writers of the Hebrew Bible. Um, that that the soul you could think of as a kind of functional concept. It is that about human beings, uh, which uh, confers uh, you know, special characteristics on us that differentiate us from other animals in the world. Uh, and uh, there is talk of survival of death in terms of the soul. But uh, if we're imaginative, we might be able to think of how that could be true yeah, even yeah, for physically composed beings. Those seem, those uh, seem like rear guard saving actions, but, you know, sometimes that's what you have to do. But let's uh, <laughs> uh, let some, let's, uh, let's, let's let's yeah, some callers in Okay, uh, I'll let you reply. Then well, I'm just going to say, I'm just going to say, it's, you know, it's controversial whether that, you know, just that's a historical claim. Um, um, yeah. And whether whether uh, theologians have often thought that. I, I certainly think it's it's very doubtful to think that the writers of the Hebrew Bible were thinking that way. You might have a better case when it came, comes to the early church fathers. Yeah, definitely. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We've got a lineup of callers, Jerry and Cupertino. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Jerry. Yes, good morning. Um, I guess I, I have a real quick question or, or, or comment, and that is science seems to be self-correcting. That is, uh, somebody proposes uh, a new law, it's tested, it's verified, and it's um, it's it is always possible to find some some instance where it doesn't apply, and it's either uh, it's either thrown out or modified to suit you know physical physical laws. Theology, on the other hand, doesn't seem to be self-correcting. There's there's lots of different religions. They all have different purposes. They all have different uh, different pieces to them. Geez, uh, uh, one one religion feels that. Uh, Either reincarnation, another another feels. Oh no, the, the you know the soul disappears when you die. Um, it's not they're, they're not converging anywhere where you can say, oh, this is this is religion. You know, this yeah. is this these are the these are the laws from God. There is no one God. There's a, a multitude of these. Whereas science tends to converge on uh, you know converge on a particular a particular effect. And it becomes absolute. I mean, Jerry, I, I take your point. Thanks for the question, but I, I want to push back on you a little bit because sure. actually, what we're kind of doing in this segment, and really throughout the show, again, think about what I cut the Great Reconciliation Project. Science. We we've said religion, and Tim has said religion has to adjust in light of the discoveries of science. 
right? And that religion adjusting in light of the discovery of science is a kind of self-correction. It's not just sort of religiously internal self-correction, but you wouldn't want it to be that if you think science is our most astounding uh, epistemic achievement. And, and, and moreover, the question that we're asking now, whether some religions do better at accommodating science is are, as reflective human beings, trying to say... We're going to hold religion to the following constraint. Whatever, we're only going to endorse you if you are to some greater or lesser extent uh, 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 compatible with what science teaches us. Tim, what do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, uh, well, it's certainly true, of course, that uh, science is much more self-correcting than uh, the best uh, case scenario, say, for, for a religion like Christianity, because it's, get, it's constantly getting a stream of new data um, to work on, uh, whereas the primary religious data are, are more fixed. There's, there's the ongoing experiences that religious people have and reflections on those. Uh, but I do think that um, theology can and has, has been and ought to be self-correcting. Part, part of the problem is that science is, uh, any organized science is a kind of an elite community, right? People dedicated, people who are properly credentialed. You don't get to be part of uh, um, the, the field of, of science if you, you haven't been trained right. And, and it's an enterprise that's just zeroed in on discerning truth. Uh, you know, in the case of religion, we have a non-elite community, right? Uh, people are welcome of all levels of intellect, um, moral character, and whatnot. And you get this cacophony of voices. So uh, what you get in the case of religion is a, a much less well-organized ongoing discussion and change. And when you get populist religion, like in uh, American Christianity, uh, things get more chaotic still because people become prominent voices, not because they've been recognized to be especially insightful, but just because they've gained a larger audience. <laughs> yeah, you can say that again. <laughs> Through persuasive I mean, you preaching. You say it again, but I think that's absolutely right. <laughs> I'd like to go back to a point that uh, came up earlier. We were talking about uh, which religions might be less threatened by science and and Ken somehow I've heard him say this before thinks pantheism is the one that might win out as the most plausible but I'd like to hear a discussion between the two of you on that my skepticism is that it, it seems exactly wrong science tells us that these pockets of decreasing entropy that is of increasing order like the earth are very rare in the universe which as a whole is is getting uh, more and more disorderly so since Everything we know about consciousness is that it depends on a, a highly ordered system, namely the brain, makes it look to me like the universe as a whole is an unlikely thing to turn out to have the attributes of God. So I'm, I don't think pantheism is going to come out that well if you take it seriously. That's my view. Well, but wait a minute. I think pantheism, I'm not a pantheist, but if I were a pantheist, I'd say, well, look, the universe as a whole, that is the thing that is the suitable object of worship now now what is the what is the content of the suitable ob of the universe as a whole it is not given through to us through sacred scripture but through our encounter with the universe as a whole and we are blessed somehow to be the beings who can we're that part of the universe that can contemplate and discover the deliverances of the universe that seems to me where religion ought to go right that there is a thing that's worthy of worship I mean, that's what I think. It, we have religion if we think that there's a thing that's worthy of this special attitude called worship. And there is a thing worthy of worship, the universe as a whole. What is its content? Science is going to tell us that. Well, I don't think that's pantheism, which is defined on my online dictionary as a, 
identifying God with the universe or regarding the universe as a manifestation of God. I'd say you're in for a religion that says we shouldn't worship God because he may not exist, and even if he does, he's too remote to benefit by it. But anyway, what do you, what do you what think? Do you, think? <laughs> yeah. You're the expert here. <laughs> right. Well, you know, we, what we haven't talked about is whether um, religion can explain anything that, in principle, science could not. And I, I do think theism uh, is offers potential explanation and good explanation uh, for things that, in principle, science couldn't. Um, you know, the, there being anything at all for science to describe the fundamental orderliness of the universe we observe. There's the whole business of fine-tuning in physics, which is complicated, but I, I think there's something there. Uh, and then just, you know, the existence of value, um, which is hard to reconcile with a, a I mean, you could just hold that alongside a fundamentally physical reality, you just have these abstract um, values, true, true normative uh, reality. But theism, holding that, that physical reality is not ultimate reality, um, but God is, uh, it's much easier to see um, moral value as, as foundational. So I, so I think there's explanatory benefit of theism. Uh, and then, you know, any particular historical religion like Christianity, the question is whether it historically can explain certain phenomena like Christians claim uh, uh, has is the, is the case when it comes to Jesus of Nazareth. So you, th- so you think that uh, ultimately yeah. non-theistic explanations are incomplete because, I mean, they, the, non-theistic yes. explanations can explain a lot of stuff, but the ultimate reality... Uh, is not going to be explained by anything non-theistic. And I, I guess I think uh, ultimate the- non-theistic explanation is complete, but you can still get something like religion if you say to have a religion is to have an appropriate attitude of worship, but it's still a thing that's n- not theistic. Or, or you can call it pantheistic. There's no distinction between the universe and God. But you, you think we need something outside the universe, God outside the universe, to explain things ultimately, right? Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Um, I, I mean, this gets into metaphysical questions about whether we can uh, think of the world itself as the kind of unified, necessary being of the sort that theists think that ultimate reality needs to be. But uh, just moral value. Um, I'm not sure how the pantheist fits moral value, and that's something I think that we bring to science, uh, whether as religious people or just as ordinary human beings. Um, uh, we, we believe, we act on, on the assumption that human beings and other other creatures and other other things, indeed, um, have moral significance, and I don't see how you fit that into a picture on which um, you know the physics is delivering to us of physical reality. Well, Tim, on that puzzling note, it's a deep and puzzling question. We'll have to do another show with you on that. I'm going to thank you for joining <laughs> us this time. All right, thank you. Our guest has been Tim O'Connor. He's a professor of philosophy from Indiana University. He's author of Theism and Ultimate Explanation, The Necessary Shape of Contingency. So, John, what are you thinking now? Oh, I'm just uh, thinking about uh, 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 Tim's last remarks. He's basically outlining what you might call a moral argument for God, that our experience of morality can only be explained by objective values, and objective values are best explained uh, by a transcendental God. That was that was the view that the dean of the college I went to had written his dissertation about. You don't hear it much now expressed as a philosophical argument straightforwardly, but I think it's really, uh, in, in terms of the phenomenology of religion, extraordinarily important. I do too, and we'll have to think and talk about this more, and we will do so on our blog where this conversation continues. On the blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is, cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very, very active Facebook page. Now we speed through the cosmos.
With Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes. Even before the newfangled weird science we have, I had trouble understanding physics. As a kid, I learned about thermodynamics and was promptly confused. The third law, for instance, which says that the entropy of a system at absolute zero is typically zero, how do they know that? Are there enough systems at absolute zero out there that we even know what typical is? Plus, I'm not sure what entropy is exactly. A system gets sleepy, decides to lie down, then has trouble waking up again. That's how I think of it, but that can't be right. And all that stuff is kind of out the window anyway. Even to look physics up on Wikipedia, you have to understand algebra, calculus, differential equations, Newtonian mechanics, who knows what all. Most people have no idea what it is. There's the Big Bang, for instance. What happened before the Big Bang? Shut up. Do we live in an infinity of multiverses? Maybe. What is all this dark matter I keep reading about? Don't know. We have particles that turn into waves that can make a particle turn into a wave on the other side of the universe. Is that true? True-ish, anyway. We're spending millions of dollars to find a God particle. And one day a scientist will say, You see, little Timmy, we know it exists because it isn't there. Okay, Professor. Any wonder it's all subject to what scientists call woo? Telepathy, teleportation, healing from a distance with our minds, all of this is not only possible, but probable. All grist for a best-selling book in the New Age section. Physics is like Eastern religions, because the universe is a dynamic, interconnected unity. I don't know what that means. It's mystical. Traditional arguments for God's existence have kind of gone away. The idea was that the universe is a well-ordered timepiece, therefore there must be a clockmaker. Well, the universe is not well-ordered. It's confusing and bleak. Therefore... Shut up. On God's side now, the anthropic principle is used to counter clockmaker intelligent design arguments. It says that since we are here, arguments of how or why we got here are irrelevant. The universe is adequate for our existence. How that proves the existence of God, though, I don't quite get. All I know is that misunderstandings quickly become fuzzy dogmas. The Internet devours everything. And I've read that consciousness itself controls the universe. It's true. The mind turns a possibility into a happening. And where does the mind come from? Who knows? It's supernatural. The way it works is things just appear in the universe, just for us. We're like a hyperactive only child, spoiled and pampered, opening presents on a never-ending Christmas. We are child, parent, toy store, capitalist system, universe, and God, all in one. Thank you, physics. We'll have iPads, Google Glasses, nose jobs, and round trips to Machu Picchu for infinity. Or until entropy takes it all away. I gotta go. The Wisdom of the Ages, in a nutshell, from Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University. Copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Thanks also to Chris Hoff, Merle Kessler, Dave Millar, Jimmy Tobin, Itran, Carola Kreitmar, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from the Templeton Foundation and also from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.